Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 216. This week, we're going to discuss training for speed and power after an injury with the director of Barbell Medicine's pain and rehab department, Dr. Derek Miles. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts, trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Pioneer has belts to fit your needs, whether it's a 13mm thick, 4-inch wide belt for powerlifting like me, a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit, and everything in between. They'll also custom make belts to your specifications. I bought and paid for a new belt from them last year and been very impressed with both the performance and quality. All products are made in the USA. Check them out at generalleathercraft.com and support those who support us. This podcast is also brought to you by Bells of Steel, maker of high-quality exercise equipment that won't break the bank. Established in 2010 and located in Indianapolis, Indiana, Bells of Steel's mission is to help you get stronger, healthier, and more muscle for your hard-earned dollar. Bells of Steel has a ton of cool products for outfitting your home gym, including calibrated iron plates, air bikes, belt squat machines, racks, and much, much more. If for whatever reason you don't love your new equipment, Bells of Steel offers a 30-day money-back guarantee to return your order, and they'll even pay the shipping back. Check them out at bellsofsteel.us and use the code BBM23 to get 10% off selected items. This podcast is also brought to you by Viori. Viori makes super high-quality, versatile clothing for inside and outside the gym for both men and women. I'm absolutely in love with their fleet pants and core shorts. If you know me, you know I'm pretty picky about the stuff I train in, and both of these items are super comfortable and super durable with the type of training that I do. I've also been wearing their Rise Tee in and outside of the gym, which fits better than more expensive shirts I've tried before. Viore also sources sustainable materials for their products and offsets their carbon footprint 100%. Head over to their website, viore.com backslash barbell, to get 20% off your first order. Dr. Derek Miles, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I don't know what number you are on the ranking system for most handsome doctors in North America, but I think you're in the top 10. That's, uh, I, I would say the, uh, top 90th percentile. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. You're, you're at least one and a half standard deviations above, uh, the mean here. I mean, we are barbell medicine after all. Uh, so for listeners who may not be familiar with who you are and what you do at barbell medicine, how you got here, can you give us a, a quick little review of your, uh, your CV? Sure. I am a residency trained physical therapist. I worked at the university of Florida for 10 years and they're, doing sports medicine and orthopedics before going to Stanford Children's and doing, or I was their advanced clinical specialist building the orthopedic side of their program. Now I reside in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, the great state of Ohio, and basically uh, create content for you guys. Uh, still do some of the peer review process and academic conferences, but uh, slowly joining the dark side of social media. Yeah. How do you feel about that? You go from publishing stuff in, in, in various academic journals to now figuring out like what infographics going to slap the most on Instagram. Well, you know, if the goal is really communication, if I publish an article, it may in a good day get two to 3000 downloads. And that would be a very good article in the rehab community. Whereas, you know, I feel that our reach is logarithmically larger doing it this way 
Yeah, I would be so curious to know. I mean, I've read papers before on like, you know, the average citation number for a given publication in a given journal with the particular impact factor. And then, you know, how many people actually read the entire article versus the abstract <laughs> for for a citation. And then obviously compared to impressions or views or shares or saves on uh, different social media platforms, I'm, uh, the number, like you said, is logarithmically higher uh, on social media. Um, but the actual impact, I'd be more curious about that. It's like, all right, well, the people that are reading the academic journals, are they the quote unquote tastemakers in the space? You know, they're, they're uh, doing other research, publishing other papers, and maybe the critical mass needed to change clinical practice uh, is maybe greater there than stuff on social media. But then if we share things on social media, maybe we get uh, a bigger reach into the general public and maybe that makes a better change at the end of the day. I don't know. We're going to find out. We're run, we're living in an experiment. Ten to twenty years from now, <laughs> we'll be we'll have a better appreciation. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it helps cut out the middleman because not many people have access to the academic journals or you know the backdoor ways that we have found to obtain them. But for the average person, you know, you finish school and it's not like you're sitting on PubMed daily going through what's whatever the current topic is, or even for that matter, watching the Twitter dumpster fires of researchers go back and forth over their papers. So I, I think overall, it's how do we create the combination of the most palatable and accurate message? Yeah, no, well said. Um, speaking of content, so we've got new content on our brand new website just launched in January. So we've got new articles on how exercise affects headaches, uh, how exercise affects liver function tests uh, on, a, on a blood test. So those both are brand new, published in the last two weeks, uh, linked in the description below. So you guys can check that out. We have new videos on YouTube. Also, our app just received some updates. Um I don't know if it's act actually live yet because we're trying to get some servers in place, but the latest update allows folks to upload videos uh, for either their coach, if they work with a barbell medicine coach to review or for their own sort of training log. So that's up there. Also, you get free access to the first week of all of our templates um, on the app. So you can go to the Apple app store, download the app for free and check out our templates, all of our resources. And uh, yeah, soon to come, I believe, unless it's already live, I just, I can't be certain. Uh, we'll have some video functionality there. So that'd be that'd be cool. Uh, now, on this week's podcast, episode 216, I'm with Dr. Derek Miles. We're going to be talking about the presentation you did at uh, CSM recently here in San Diego. Uh, what is this conference about? How did you get invited to to do this? And and then what, what was the premise? So CSM is the combined sections meeting for the American Physical Therapy Association. It is a gathering of all branches of physical therapy and likely for a lot of listeners you picture orthopedics and sports being the main thing but there is a neuro faction there geriatrics uh, adaptive cardiopulmonary so it's trying to facilitate discussion amongst all the different groups um i was actually actually this year i spoke within the federal section so talking more about like special operators and return to sport. So I spoke with Mark Reibel and Rob Rowland, who both work in that realm much more often. Uh, one spoke on strength programming and the other on aerobic capacity. And then I was uh, tapped for power development in the rehabilitation process. 
power development. Now, this is actually something we haven't directly addressed on the podcast. We we pay lip service to it when we're talking about programming for different goals, you know, particularly for athletes uh, whose sports involve running, kicking, sprinting, jumping, throwing, etc. Obviously, high velocity force production, power uh, production is very important, but we haven't done a podcast on how to program for that and further how to do it and incorporate it into rehab training. So that's what we're going to be talking about this week. Um, but let's give people a lay of the land here, give them a little background. Um, so to start, what sort of programming chops does the average physical therapist have? Because I think the public might not have an appreciation for, you know, the education and the no- fund of knowledge that your average physical therapist has once when they're out of school, they're in practice, they go to see them after an injury um, or even post-op. So what, what's the what sort of programming skills does the average physical therapist have from an exercise standpoint? Uh, I, I would venture not much. It, typically in school, the classes are very diagnostic heavy. And as far as theory of programming, how to dose sets, reps, intensity, rest, uh, it, it's starting to change. But when I was in school, uh, there was hardly any discussion regarding effective programming. In fact, I think most of us that ended up in the sports realm still came to it more from the, like I read flex or flex magazine in the late nineties, early two thousands. And that's how I learned to program. And it wasn't until post-school that you get into some of the literature and philosophy on ways and means of doing said programming. Yeah. I I mean, obviously uh, a, a common major that physical therapists, uh, particularly in the United States where physical therapy is a graduate program, a lot of the people who get into the graduate program, their undergrad degrees in exercise science and many universities in the United States, sort of your, it's not an exit exam, but you get an opportunity to receive like an ACSM credential or a national strength and conditioning association credential or something similar. So they may have had some exposure to like actual legitimate strength and conditioning or exercise in the case of ACSM sort of programming theory or construction, but yeah, after they're done and they're out in practice, it seems like only those who have some sort of personalized interest in human performance as it pertains to exercise, whether it's for a particular sport or whether it's for just getting, you know, stronger, bigger, faster, better conditioned, whatever, uh, they might not actually have a lot of formalized training and, and, and experience more to that point, um, in actually programming exercise. So in your estimation, how would you, how would you improve this? Does there need to be more didactic work in the physical therapy, like education, you know, in those programs, do they need to have, uh, more requirements to get into PT school? How do you, how do you go about fixing this? Just asking really simple questions right <laughs> to start out. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> So I would say CSM is a good place to start having this conversation because there's 15,000 attendees and I believe 50 to 60% are still students. So Mm -hmm. it's the get them while they're young conversation because, you know, once we've kind of learned our exercise paradigms, a lot of us don't go back to the beginning and question if we're doing the right thing. You also, some of it is the structure of school and most schools that I'm aware of, I know of a few, but the majority don't have either the space nor the equipment to actually teach this. And there's always an argument in the same thing in medicine. Do you create a generalist or do you create a specialist? But 
in medicine, you have to go on to specialize, whereas in physical therapy, you don't. So the education tends to slant more towards generalization, which I can appreciate. But if over 40% of the field is working in orthopedics, then I would also make the case that there should be some fundamental programming in there. Unfortunately, if you look historically, physical therapy's history is really rooted in this movement systems expert conversation of there is a particular way you need to move. And before you can ever have an external load, then it has to meet whatever arbitrary guidelines that we're going to say looks right, which has just been constantly debunked. I think it starts with having the conversation around just encouraging activity versus telling people, you know, your knees hurt, don't run or your back hurts, don't squat. And once we get over that hump, then it's like, well, okay, well, how do we scale getting you back to running or how do we scale getting you back to squatting or whatever, you know, LARPing, pick something. Yeah. Yeah. The trajectory, I think the goals for the trajectory is similar regardless of the education level, but yeah, it's okay. You have a person who comes into the clinic who has some sort of injury has been, you know, uh, tasked, you've been tasked with their care to sort of set them up for success for the return to sport. If they're actually a competitive athlete or recreational activity, or, or in some cases, get them back to like activities of daily life, you know, being able to do that independently and unencumbered. Uh, it seems like the, the needs so to speak, may differ in scale, but ultimately to me, this seems like an opportunity to get people more active to meet or exceed the current physical activity guidelines for those who are previously insufficiently active or, uh, and, or for those who are involved in sport to kind of get them prepared to return to practice and later on, you know, competitive sport, or again, if for recreational, uh, enthusiasts of particular physical activities, make sure that they're well set up to get back to that without sort of in having an increased risk of re-injury and, you know, remove removal from that, from that activity. Uh, so at, how much of that is actually going on in the clinic that you, a person comes in, let's say they've got, you know, they've been diagnosed with a particular type of knee tendinopathy again, because physical therapists and doctors alike are, you know, we really focus on the diagnostics. You got to give people, they got to label it, which we could, that's a, for another podcast, how useful that is. Um, how, how much sort of actual exercise, uh, sort of recommendations are, are being provided, uh, or is it more focused on just, Hey, you're here for your knee. Let's talk about your knee. Let's do stuff to your knee. Where, where does that break down? Well, I, I think it's going to be clinic dependent, obviously. And I can mostly just speak to the ones I've worked in, uh, where, I have worked, the goal has been to be very focused, especially in the athletic population on being able to develop a program and implement a program and meet the athlete where they're at. I know that across the board, that's not the case. And typically, you know, there's a running joke within the profession of it's just three sets of 10 with the yellow TheraBand. <laughs> and the bigger issue, I think a lot of times is that we end up skipping the step because everyone's like, yeah, I strength train my patients or, you know, I, I implement exercise to increase strength. And you're like, well, what does that mean? And we don't have that conversation. And I know of a few institutions that like put out a decent bit of research on like post-operative ACL care. And they talk about strength training. And one, I'm intimately familiar with what they do is not strength training. If you're just doing open chain knee extension, 
six weeks out of an ACL, that's good that you have found the exercise. But if you're not asking the athlete how hard the exercise is, odds are you're drastically underdosing or overdosing, more likely in the physical therapy world, underdosing. And then when we're talking about strengthening, you know, one of the fun, fundamental principles is progressive overload. So if we have an athlete who is doing open chain knee extension for three sets of eight at RPE seven at six weeks, and then at nine months, we see them and they're doing three sets of eight with 45 pounds and haven't checked RPE in a while. Well, can we really say we have gotten them stronger? Like there's a a famous study that talks about bone mineral density in adolescent athletes or adolescent runners. And they put them on a strength training program and showed, unsurprisingly, when you do it, you get increased bone mineral density. But they ran the program for 15 months and they had a 40% increase in strength, which to me, if you give me someone who's never trained before in a year and three months and all I give you is 40% increase, that's probably probably not a really good program. Pretty bad. Yeah, pretty bad. Yeah, because if we start out with an empty bar and I can take you to – from 20 kilo to 40 kilo, that's not typically a very hard step for a lot of untrained athletes. Oh yeah. One of, one of the initial studies I came across, uh, with respect to like training, um, older individuals had these older, uh, women over the age of 65 and they were bench pressing twice a week and they did it for a year and they assessed basically their one rep max at the beginning, at the end of the year. And the majority of them did not increase their bench press over the course of the year. And it's like, what are you, what are we all actually doing in the sessions? Like, and, and I'm just, because that's not strength training. If you don't actually get stronger, it's not strength training. It's just kind of like you're active, you know, but the programming is not actually driving the adaptations that you want. One of which is obviously strength training. And so that actually leads into the, the next part of this conversation is, you know, when I, when I am trying to piece together a program for any particular individual, there are, you know, three or four like major sort of pillars that I'm trying to, uh, develop physical pillars. Well, one is going to be strength. One is going to be cardiorespiratory uh, endurance. Uh, another one is muscle mass. So muscular hypertrophy. Uh, and then, you know, there's this sort of, there's other pillars that can be involved. One could be high velocity force production. So power that could be skill. It just really depends on the individual, but really I'm, you know, am I improving your cardiorespiratory fitness? Am I improving your muscle mass? Am I improving your strength? And then what else do we need to do? Is that the same way you approach programming in the rehab setting? Or, or is it a little bit different, um, you know, because the person's coming to you with the uh, acute, but hopefully resolving injury. So I, I will take your great saying of why, or when I can and <laughs> sure. And in the rehab setting, it is those pillars, but the crux of a lot of things when injuries in play is also, how do I keep you in shape while you're going through the injury? Mm-hmm. So I may not be trying to drive, uh, aerobic adaptations, but I'm trying to maintain them as best we can within the constraints of whatever the injury is, or I may not be able to, or I may not be trying to drive top end power development, but how do I set myself up or set the athlete up to where, when the constraints are removed, we can focus on higher velocity and, and maximum effort. Yeah. Yeah. You, you want for people in particular who come in with a high level of fitness, you're going to try to preserve those adaptations that they already have while they're, while we're focusing on, you know, return to play, return to sport, um, and getting somebody in a position to do that. So making sure those things don't decay, that'd be part of, you know, one of the major priorities, but for individuals who are previously insufficiently active, there's a great opportunity to like 
hey, let's start you on this journey. So uh, one specific idea I had in mind, all right, if you got somebody in there post ACL or post knee tendinopathy, you know, or they're, you know, dealing with knee tendinopathy and you're, you're, you know, sort of taking them through this process. Are you guys, are you programming like specific upper body work for them while they're in the clinic? So I don't know if you looked at my slides from the talk, but I'm notorious for still benching everyone on Monday, even <laughs> if they have an ACL. Yeah. And it, it really is just driving the point of like, so you have one leg that we can't do as much with. You still have another leg, a trunk and two upper extremities that we can go hard on. Sure. So a lot of times I'll have the running joke. I'm like, well, probably not going to squat PR for a little while, but that bench PR is on the horizon. Like sure. it, it might as well get something to where we can really see the success of it all. Yeah. I like that way to set it up too, is because it, it's like you're, okay, we're, we're maybe limited in some things, but then that we can shift those available resources to other things. And part of those resources are going to be dedicated to rehabbing the particular injury. And part of those resources are going to be allocated towards develop and or developing or maintaining other existing fitness adaptations. And so, yeah, and this is, again, doubly as important for people who are previously not that active. It's like, but I don't, I'm here for my knee. Why are we benching? It's like, cause you never have benched before you have no upper body or, you know, <laughs> not enough upper body strength to, to interact with our environments. Plus exercise is great for you, um, just in general, but then also for the, from a rehab perspective, you get things like crosstalk between different limbs. You get, you know, this sort of systemic anti-inflammatory effect of exercise in general and ultimately makes everything uh makes everything better what is a, a rising tide raises all ships <laughs> stuff like that sort of thing so uh over the course of the rehab process is there like a a shift from where we're like all right we're just trying to deal with the acute sort of symptoms to okay now we're trying to actually generate some high velocity force production, some power, uh, or try to develop some more maximal strength in this affected limb. Does that change? Well, I think one of the things in a well-designed program is you're trying to avoid inflection points. And, mm -hmm. and it's not that we finally got your knee quiet enough to do things. It's like, where are we with those priorities? And then where can we allocate the resources elsewhere? Mm -hmm. And even with something like power production, typically if we have a lot of constraints in place, we're focused on isometric exercises just because you can't bend or externally load that much or, or whatever the constraint of the surgery is. But there's still a difference in like flexure quad and like without peaking the audio on this in true strength training coach voice, flexure quad as hard as you can. Mm -hmm. And it's anchoring to that intent. And I think a lot of times we slant too far towards the protective side of it. And at some point we have to hit that button and say, okay, where can I start leaning in to a little bit more performance development? Because if I constantly slant towards the most conservative selection, and then you have to go out and go up against a 230 pound defensive end, well, your knee may be quote unquote healed, but the rest of you is about to get trucked. Yeah not a good trade-off there considering you had all this opportunity and time to like prepare yourself accordingly. Um, okay. So that's actually a perfect segue into the main subject of your presentation at the CSM 2023, which is on power. So let's start off with some definitions here. Dr. Miles, what is power? So the way I framed it for this discussion, because you can certainly parse this into levels of minutia that I would say is not valuable. Uh, 
I leaned into the synonyms of like explosiveness, agility, and speed, with the definition being the ability to produce force in the shortest amount of time possible. Yeah, I typically talk about powers like high velocity force production, high velocity strength, whereas strength, as most people discuss it, is like this maximal low velocity strength. So you think powerlifting, for example, and then actual, but actual power would be high velocity strength. And so I I like that. Yeah. Being able to develop force and display it, apply it quickly. So there's a time component there and, you know, you can run the gamut from things with the, you know, no real external load. So just be like body weight displays of power. So sprinting, jumping, stuff like that, a light implement, throwing a a, a light implement like a baseball for example or swinging a golf club uh and then you go further and further down the line like olympic weightlifting people are, people always say oh to develop power you should do olympic weightlifting i'm like well the external loads are actually relatively heavy and so if you're looking for like peak power production it's going to be with the lighter an implement or no external load i mean that's just the uh you know force velocity curve right there so if you're looking at actual like how quickly do your joints, you know, change angles? Well, it's not going to be with a snatch. It's going to be, you know, sprinting or jumping or something like that where there is no external load. Well, in the trade-off there is a snatch and a clean and jerk are highly technical movements. Yep. So do I want to waste or do I want to use weeks of my program teaching you two variant lifts when I can probably still develop those skills in other ways? Like, I don't know that you need to turn a bar over. You can still get the effect out of a clean pool. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a discussion. You know, people are like, well, who needs to learn to do the Olympic lifts and people like kind of put Olympic weightlifting in this own, its own, like it's on a pedestal. It's like, oh, that's how you're going to really improve power. It's like, well, you could do trap bar deadlifts at a light enough weight where you can move quickly. You could do jump squats, for example, you could do uh, all sorts of things that are less technically demanding, but still generate the same adaptations. The only thing is you don't, at that point, you don't learn how to snatch or clean or whatever. And it's like, do you need to learn those things? I mean, I think they're, I think they can be fun. And so for a person who wants to, that's fine. But as far as dedicating different training resources, uh, to learning the technical skills that allow you to actually train high velocity force production, that's, you know, that's some calculus that needs to be worked out between, the patient in your scenario or the client in my situation and, you know, their goals, their needs, their time, et cetera. Uh, so the question here is who needs to actually train this high velocity force production power? Does everybody need to be doing this? Is it just for athletes involved in sports that require power production or, or what? I would say more people than do it And this gets at like the easy knock here is going to be to go after power lifters Let's where do it. Every, everything <laughs> is slow and heavy but in the grand scheme of things like we do we, we tend to train to try and be athletic and that is predicated on being able to move fast and being able to move in different directions and i don't think it needs to be this massive chunk of a program but if you have general physical preparation some of that should be trying to go fast, trying to change directions. And especially within the rehab setting, if you're having an ACL reconstruction, really the only evidential reason for undergoing this procedure is because it increases your odds of returning to sports where you're running, jumping, and cutting. Mm-hmm. So if you have no intentions of running, jumping, and cutting, well, it probably doesn't need to be in your program, but it also, like, why are we doing this in the first place? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. For sports that require you to 
run, jump, cut, implement, you know, interact with the environment at high velocities, you must do some sort of power training in your preparatory phase for the season. Um, whether you need to do it in season or not, we're going to discuss that, you know, in detail later, but I definitely think those sports for sure should definitely do some power training for your general fitness enthusiast. I think some of your program should be dedicated or allocated to improving high velocity force production. Maybe not a lot. It's really more personal preference at that point, but you shouldn't leave it out. Um, there's definitely some, some benefits to be had there. And if you're building this big base of physical development that you're going to then apply specifically at any point, whether you want to or not, whether you want to be in like a recreational, uh, athletic pursuit and whether, you know, (laughs) you were unplanned, but you needed to sprint away from some sort of thing. It's nice to have, have that in the tank, but then there's sports like powerlifting where like, okay, if there's any sport on the face of this planet where I could advocate for like, not specifically training high velocity force production, it would be in like a meat prep situation. Like you're very close to a meat and I'm, yeah, I'm not going to allocate training resources to that, you know, when you're close to a competition, but during these sort of general physical preparation, GPP phases, uh, where you're trying to become a well-rounded athlete and also avoid overuse stuff, this would be a perfect time to sort of shore up or fill in any gaps you might have in your physical development. Some of that's going to be high velocity force production. Well, and I think here, something you said uh, would definitely trigger a little bit with me with the youth development interest that I have, because you know you said for meat prep, well, is it the local county meat or is it nationals? Sure. Yeah. And there, it's still a little bit, well, it's not a little bit, it's a very different conversation. And if we're trying to climb the ladder of competition, then yes, it, it likely doesn't need to have a have much of a place in there. But the other thing we know about most training modalities is the difference between doing the bare minimum and doing nothing at all. You still reap way more rewards out of that bare minimum. Yep. So I don't think it needs to be this like we're going to have a block where we're doing speed camp drills and it's more like, Hey, at the end of the workout, uh, we're going to try and sprint 10 meters as fast as we can four times. Yeah. Yeah. And, and gradually progressing that from, all right, maybe we're running it, sprinting at 80% all the way up to like full speed unrestricted. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just something like a little bit, a little bit, whereas a track and field athlete who's principally, you know, whose principal's con- concern is to sprint fast or throw something really far or whatever the majority of their training in particular blocks may be centered around high velocity force production um, just because that's very specific to their sport. Uh, So that leads us into the next question. The specific differences between training for power, so this high velocity force production and training for strength, which again, I think when I say strength, people think of like one rep max, low velocity, squat, bench, deadlift, press, stuff like that. Uh, Although there are many different types of strength. There's low velocity strength, high velocity strength, strength, stamina, strength, endurance, you know, you could attach a bunch of different, uh, descriptors to this thing and and get to a different place. Uh, but what are the biggest differences between training for power? Again, that's high velocity force production and traditional strength training for maximal low velocity strength. I, I would say it is that allocation of top end work, whereas for power, you're not doing a ton of going yellow it's much more of a like we're spending a lot of our time at lower intensities working on some of the dynamics of technique and then trying to get a few reps as hard as we possibly can yeah and then you know strength we're still touching 
are at eights or at nines, but you're not going full send every day or, or even, you know, very often in what you're doing. But there's also a subtle difference in even how you cue it. The, the difference between saying, I want you to do this as fast as you can, and I want you to do this as hard as you can, it is still going to give us a, a little bit of a difference in our force time curve. Yeah. I mean, so when we use RPE, the rating of perceived exertion for traditional strength work, we usually use that as a proxy for repetitions in reserve, uh, for, particularly for multi-rep sets. So you're doing a set of five reps at RP8 means you have two reps left in the tank. And so, yeah, by nature of that prescription, it's going to be pretty heavy. There's going to be some bar velocity loss. Uh, and you know, that's all well and good for maximal strength development, which again is low velocity strength. Um, but if you're programming, uh, for power, you might, you know, program something like three at eight, but you're not using reps in reserve as a proxy that RP eight is really principally concerned with effort and intent. Um, and so the way, when I typically program for power in the not, you know, non rehab setting, um, I kind of artificially select the load, whether it's 40%, 50%, something light, light enough to move quickly, no matter what they end up doing. <laughs> Cause it, if it doesn't move, if it's not moving quickly, the sort of power adaptations that you're getting out of that, out of that, or the adaptations that, you know, further improve power production are just not going to be as great in magnitude, but it's going to be 50%. We'll say for two reps at RP eight and the RP eight there or nine or whatever I use is going to be principally concerned with again, effort. Like I want you to move this as fast as humanly possible or RP eight, like almost as fast as you think you, you can. Um, and, and generally I'll, I'll sort of scale that with how far along their technique is for the particular thing that we're doing trap bar deadlift, pretty low technique requirements demands. So it's like, you look, I might send that at 10, but it's going to be at 50% of their one RM. So it can move quickly. Compare that to like a clean or a snatch that have much greater technical demands or sprinting. Like if you want to be a good sprinter, you got to have great technique. Um, or like a med ball put, you literally heaving a med ball across the room. Like, okay. So not as much, many technical demands. So you can send that at 10. <laughs> 10 pound med ball put at RP 10, two reps, three minute rests in between whatever. But it sounds like you're saying principally the weight has to be light enough for it to move quickly. And then you're using RPE if you do to, to sort of not be a proxy for repetitions in reserve, but more be uh, associated with effort. Correct. And it, this is the first podcast I hope goes up on YouTube and you can just see my head nodding with everything you were just saying. <laughs> uh, but in, in the grand scheme of things, it is making sure that we're going hard enough with our effort. And there are still plenty of ways, even in the rehab space, that we can put some of these drills in place. And on top of it, like it is ultimately asking that question of what is hard for you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of rehab is like, are we sufficiently challenging you for where we need to be right now? And if you haven't anchored that to some proxy of an intensity or effort, then we have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. So in the rehab setting, like how do you go about introducing this? Like somebody comes in again, knee tendinopathy as diagnosed by their primary care physician. So now they've got, I don't know, three weeks or whatever, X amount of sessions with the physical therapist and you're and they happen to get you mm -hmm. stroke of luck when, you know, and they are involved in a bunch of resistance training. They play rec league soccer, uh, and ultimately just, you know, like, like being very active, uh, 
when is it appropriate to start kind of working this in, in the rehab process? When they can tolerate it. And I I think the question then becomes like, how often do you test the waters? Mm -hmm. And it is athlete dependent, but if we're talking about, especially a sport that involves change of direction, the big thing you'll hear in rehab a lot of times is we can't jump and like just because of the constraints of a protocol, you don't get hurt jumping, you get hurt landing. It's, <laughs> All right, it's, fair. it's, it's when you're like accepting the force in the ground. So if we're talking about a sport that's predicated on some type of change of direction or striking the ground with both feet or one foot and something like volleyball, then we can start working on some drills to emphasize deceleration. And it's how do I anchor a specific exercise? So the easy one to talk about is something like a lunge, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, most of us, when we picture a lunge, it's standing in place, split squat variation or a walking lunge. But if we pick your foot up as high as we can and then lead down to the ground and try and catch the ground, well, now we've entered in a deceleration component to it. It's scaled. It's not nearly going to be the same level of forces, but if you can tolerate that, then it might slant me towards like, okay, well, maybe we can start with some light, like single leg bounding or alternating leg bounding. And it is finding that or that threshold of what the athlete can tolerate. All right. So, so for the listeners at home, uh, so let's say, uh, on one end of the scale is max vertical jump or, or no, you know what? We'll make it even worse jumping off of a high box and catching yourself at the bottom. So just landing off of a, I don't know, 30 inch box. That's like mm-hmm. the most intense <laughs> thing you can do. And the lowest intensity thing is standing, supporting your own body weight. Can you give us a series of steps or like progressions to get from point A to point B. I mean, granted, let's say you have unlimited time <laughs> and the person is, re- you know, recovering in a linear fashion, which doesn't tend to happen, but let's just, let's walk people from point A to point B. So uh, being able to support body weight all the way up to doing like drop jumps. So here I would say first, I'm going to give a way, not the way. And those two always get conflated, but the easiest thing to start with is just standing on the unaffected leg and hopping onto the affected leg because there you can self-select how high or how hard you're trying to go. And there we may just be working on like building confidence with the movement. <clears throat> then we may move to a four inch double leg supported drop. And what happens with every athlete there is you're going to shift to your unaffected leg. It's just something you're going to accept out of that. But if we can get you to where you're at least comfortable with the movement, then we can start doing that with a single leg side of things. At the same time, we may be also supplementing with something like that deceleration lunge or even like the other side of the equation, something like a pistol squat where we're emphasizing the eccentric down to a 24 inch box. Um, then, you know, working down on your height there and trying to go quicker with first like alternated bounds. So going from unaffected to affected for distance and then anchoring that to, I want you to go as high as you can, or I want you to go as far as you can, or I want you to try and go a little bit further than last week Mm -hmm. and trying to set that intensity or that effort accordingly. And then if we're trying to build up to a progressively higher, something like a drop vertical jump, then coming into stepping off of a 12 inch box and then hopping off a 12 inch box and it's just progressing how, how high the forces are. Sure. Yeah. And, I, 
I assume this is sort of like an this is like adjunct training to maybe stuff you would be doing that is either more loaded or or in a different fashion. So this person may also be doing stuff like obviously doing some sort of actual strength training, you know, that's slow and heavy, you know, relative to their current uh, fitness levels, but it's even maybe some loaded power training, whether it's, you know, squats at 50%, move it as fast as possible, trap bar deadlifts or regular deadlifts, clean pulls, uh, kettlebells. I mean, whatever, there's a handful of different things. You're doing both of these things, I assume, uh, to train it from both ends. In, in, in the rehab world, especially for like the example we're always going to come back to is an ACL, but something like a, a muscle strain works just as well here. Um, it's it's a strength problem until proven otherwise. So that's still going to form the meat and potatoes of programming until we've hit the acceptable thresholds. And there, like that's a whole another podcast on strength testing, but once we have hit an acceptable thresholds, it's not like we stop doing that, mm-hmm. but it may change from where, you know, if you're taught the NSCA or ACSM structure, you do power and then strength. Well, if my emphasis is getting you strong first, we're going to do strength first and then use the end of our time towards power. Cause I'm not trying to drive that as much in mm-hmm. how I'm structuring what's going on. So for example, we may come in three sets of five trap bar deadlifts at RP eight, drop down to 30% weight. And then I want you to give me three sets of six with three to four minutes rest. But every rep, I want you trying to explode off the ground as fast as you possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to change, change that high velocity force production with enough load to give somebody some feedback, like, Hey, don't go completely, yeah. <laughs> you know, off the reservation here. Uh, but li- again, light enough that it still moves quickly. I could see a situation here though, where people may, to use a, your phrase, outkick their coverage with respect to like training dose. Cause you're just less familiar with the dosing of power training uh, not only in the rehab setting, but also just in general, you know, if you were going to start incorporating this in their own. So for example, I can calculate a sort of training stress score based on rep number, the proximity to failure, the average intensity that was done at, uh, et cetera. So I can calculate that out, but with power training, it's a bit different because the RPE is not tethered to repetitions and reserve. So it's more about just, again, effort how hard the, uh, are you working um what do you think about dosing any sort of general thoughts on like you know where you're starting you started with like you know a handful of single leg bounds at the start and then <laughs> i don't know well so once again it depends on where the athlete is at but i would use the good old business uh philosophy of the 80 20 rule and not going above 20 percent of my power allocation towards like maximum effort, especially in the beginning. And 80% is going to be working more on like tissue capacity, whether it be like getting confidence in jumping or, or landing, or, you know, we're trying to work out some technical things like, you know, in the beginning, back to the good old ACL, if we're lacking that terminal knee flexion actively, then we're probably going to be doing some drills like, you know, high knees where your emphasis is to like, really drive that knee up and get into flexion every time. But there, you know, I'm not running you at like, I want you going as hard as you can there. Like I'm trying to get some exposure to the position. Yeah. 
one thing, uh, particularly in a remote setting where I'm not there to actually watch and interact and kind of get real time feedback, I, I typically limit people. I give them a time cap. I'm like, okay, so at the end of the session, we have seven minutes to do this. And so I can structure like, here's what the sets would look like. It's a handful of reps, complete rest periods. Here's the exercise that we're actually doing. Here's the intent or here's my cue. Like again, move as fast as possible, something like that. But I'm trying to limit them from again, out kicking their coverage by giving them a time cap rather than, Hey, this feels fine. And they do it, you know, (laughs) a, a ton of it. And they're like, I am wrecked, man. When I think I use the same thing and we'll program AMRAP style a lot of times, but I don't think I've ever taken it out over 20 seconds. If yeah, yeah. I've had maximum effort, most of the time it's probably closer to 15. Yep. 15 seconds, f- complete rest periods. And yeah. then, all right, cool. So you can repeat that at nauseam for seven minutes, for eight minutes, you know, whatever it is rather than yeah. like, yeah, do it as much, do it as much to your heart, to your heart content, heart's content. Um, Okay, so let's give people some specific examples here. So you were talking about uh, power training here on episode 216 uh, with Dr. Derek Miles of the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Team. Um, We discussed that most people should probably be training high-velocity force production, at least at some point in their training, in the rehab setting. This becomes increasingly important as folks near return to sport or return to unrestricted activity and uh, different ways of scaling that. Let's talk about three different examples of maybe some exercise progressions. So I've been, I keep coming back to this knee tendinopathy, knee pain, particularly on one side. Uh, let's assume this is not post-op. So this is no ACL. Can't, can't go back to that. So somebody has got knee pain. It hurts when they squat. We we've successfully found them an entry point where they can do tempo squats, uh, full depth, uh, at a higher rep, uh, range. So that limits the load. Um, I know that your stance on increasing um, tolerance of high velocity movement uh, is that that this needs to be trained from not only a confidence uh, perspective, but also just like general human performance. Where, where do they start with that? Is that sa- same thing with the single leg bounds and then they progress up from there or, or how would you specifically address this? If we're talking about a lifter. Yeah. So instead of doing our traditional like performance drop sets, where it'll be like drop 10%, hit three sets or whatever, like I, I will drop way bigger percentages in most of the time in the 40 to 50% range, something I know that they're very confident with the weight and anchor it to, I want you trying to go as close to your normal speed, if not faster as possible. Mm-hmm. And then once we've, 40% or 50% wherever the drop is at, then we start walking that back up. Got it. Yeah. So it seems like once they're able to tolerate uh, more normalized, like uh, training loads and training tempo, so they're no longer doing like tempo squats, they're doing regular squats at a, you know, somewhat challenging weight. Then at that point you might be chasing actual like high velocity stuff compared yeah. to how they would normally be training. All right. That makes sense to me. What about shoulder pain? Somebody has got like this biceps tendinopathy that's causing pain in their arm and shoulder. Uh, let's assume they're not a pitcher, <laughs> but would, you know, would like to use their arm, uh, maybe in some high velocity, uh, sort of things, or at least just have that capacity on tap. Should they need it? What would you be doing for some, maybe some upper body tendinopathy like that? Uh, probably something like wall balls. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. If I'm trying to get someone to actually like move fast, uh, you know, I, I think touch and go bench is a fine variation for your straight up power lifter. But if I want to get more into the power, I want you actually trying to like chuck something. Yeah. Do so you like a med ball put? You ever do those? Make people yeah. look silly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this gets into that, like the great, how easy is it to teach? How easy is it to scale? And how stupid does the person look doing it? <laughs> and like, if I, if we're in a traditional powerlifting gym, I'm probably not putting in like med ball puts because I, my athlete doesn't want every person in the gym staring at them while they're doing it. Yeah. Whereas like wall ball, like, you know, we're, we're doing it with both arms, obviously. So you're going to be able to hide a little bit, but it's a much more, um, acceptable exercise. <laughs> oh yeah. No, they're just doing CrossFit. They're just working on their conditioning. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. Le- so Leah has got this history of rotator cuff repair, right? And, uh, occasionally if we, if we get a little spicy, with the bench work and, and maybe and she can't tolerate her. This crops up uh, from time to time. I've, I've actually done had her do med ball puts uh, because the only thing that happens, so her performance doesn't really drop on bench press. She's able to pretty much t- and tolerate that pretty well, but she's unable to volitionally bring the bar down as fast as it would ma- to maximize efficiency on her bench press. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do med ball puts or overhead tosses, stuff like that, just to kind of like, uh, uh, give her some more options there. Uh, but I wonder what if somebody can't tolerate a med ball put or overhead toss or wall ball at any, even the lightest, uh, thing they have, like where, what's, how do you scale down even further than that? Well, so the, the traditional one that you'll see a lot of times for, especially starting to work some like deceleration in rehab is the laying prone with like a one pound ball and letting it go and catching it just to get some quickness out of that. Um, there's really a hundred ways of doing it. I have used bear crawls on multiple sure. occasions. Yep. Um, I like shoulder I, taps a lot, like from, yeah. from a push up position, t- shoulder taps, just kind of, yep. yeah. When even, you know, getting someone in push up position with like a four inch box and having them walk up and over the box as quick as they can. And it, but it's still like, what do we keep coming back to? It's like as quick as you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, so I, I think the intent is more important than the exercise selection itself in a lot of instances, especially if we're talking about exposure. Now, if you're a pitcher, then obviously at some point we got to go pitch. But if it is just trying for more symptom modification, I think we have a, a wider bag to play from there. Yeah. Yeah. This would also make great Instagram content. Just saying, you know, cause people, people want to see this stuff, especially you doing some of this stuff. I'd pay to see a med ball put out of Dr. Derek Miles. Uh, in, in my talk, I had a uh, video of me doing some exercises and I prefaced it by saying, obviously I chose the pinnacle of athleticism, a 41 year old <laughs> washed up athlete father to uh, demonstrate what's going on right now. <laughs> I love that. Uh, okay. Lastly, and it, this is something that people might not think about. Um, I've only started to think about this in the last few years after not only having to work through it myself, but also with some other people is when people have like low back pain, they're coming back from that. I think one thing that gets just swept under the rug or completely ignored is like the ability to move your back at high velocities, particularly sort of the, that, you know, lumbo pelvic junction or whatever. And, and you get people that are sensitized to that all the time. And you see it even in the least athletic sport on the planet, which is powerlifting. They don't want to lock out their deadlifts very quickly or stand all the way up at the top of a squat, particularly at a lighter weight. They're kind of sensitized or at least not, um, uh, not feeling comfortable there. So do you have people coming back from low back pain? Do you have them do some sort of high velocity stuff specific to that? 
So I will sometimes have them do like a GHD or a back extension quicker. Uh, the thing, and I'm sure you've seen this before, is people coming back from low back pain, have their like setup for deadlift goes to like 15 seconds. Again, you can see them not being confident going up to the bar. And there I will anchor it. Like you're going to select a weight to where you can get up, set up in three seconds, and that bar is coming off the ground. Yep. And that- trying to drive like in almost always when you do that one a decent bit of weight comes off the bar which who cares but changing that cue to being more aggressive approaching the bar almost always ends up with bar velocity going up yeah no that, that actually happened to us we were in uh when we were at the arnold uh with leah's deadlift so her opening attempt is 160 kilos 352 right and it was the smoothest deadlift that i mean it was perfect in every way too perfect, too smooth, and the bar velocity was not high enough for her to deadlift what she needed to deadlift, which was 391. Uh, and so I said, Leah, you got three seconds from when you walk onto the platform to start lifting the weight. Three seconds. So say all your prayers, do all the things you need to do, talk to Jesus, whatever you got to do. But when you walk on the platform, you got three seconds. And so it's so it's funny, on our last pull at 177 kilos, three, three, was that 391? Yeah, 391. I am shouting behind her, three two, one. And sure enough, she pulls it and she pulls away. Now, obviously, you know, that's a different setting than rehab, but, um, yeah, similar to you, I'll do have people do speed deadlifts after some of their deadlift work to sort of get that, feel that higher velocity, velocity stuff and feel comfortable with it. Uh, I'll cut people's setup time down. The other thing I'll have, uh, uh, people do, um, will be lighter hip thrusts just to like, you're feeling okay. We're going flexion, extension, flexion, extension, flexion, hip flexion, hip extension, uh, and ket- or kettlebell swings, stuff like that. It's just like I don't want any holes in your game. That's the whole the swings. Thing. The overhead med ball throws. If you have a gym where you can actually launch something, it, I think is really good too because there you actually get into a little bit of hyperextension and you're like emphasizing getting your hips through. Yep. So I, I think that's great. Uh, what's funny is I've never called them speed deadlifts. I just call them confidence deadlifts. It's actually like what they're called in my program. Nice. Yeah. Well, we can work on rebranding deadlifts to something like Daniel says live lifts or pickups. <laughs> like, yeah. we, I feel like well, we an image makeover. But the real question is, aren't, aren't you forced to pick an Eastern European country if you're naming an exercise? That's true. Yeah. Somebody else probably did it. Yeah. Over there. So yeah. we'll just, we'll pick something. Turkmenistan, uh, Ups. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the whole the whole point, and I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to speak for you, so you can comment on this, but in the rehab setting, it seems like the biggest problems are underdose, underdosing, first and foremost. Um, also, just like this focal attention placed on, oh, you're here for this. We're going to ignore everything else and every other fitness adaptation that is not related to just your knee, your shoulder, your back, to the much to the detriment of the individual. Um, and then further, just not leaving holes in people's games. It's like you have this opportunity where, okay, we're removed from the competitive setting and we're focusing on getting back to not only where we were before, but obviously, ideally to a higher level. So let's not leave holes in people's games and fully develop them. Athlete first, specialized second. Well, in earlier this year, actually last year now, uh, there was a paper that came out talking about trying to follow exercise prescription in the literature. And the vast majority of papers didn't sufficiently list the exercises chosen or the dosage to where you could ever replicate their study. Interesting. And if you look at how that plays out, like with 
ACL tear or ACL reconstructions or hamstring strains where you have the most literature, like athletes a lot of times have not met their strength metrics. Well, I would argue that's on us mm -hmm. and we need to be much better about our programming and in our exercise dosage. And even at this talk, like I, I encourage people to turn to the people next to them and be like, when would you be okay back squatting your athlete? Because that answer is going to be different than everyone. And we all just assume that we're strength training. We all just assume that we're doing power stuff, but nobody wants to talk about what's in the sausage and like the actual specifics of what went into that. Right. Uh, so here, here's a question. So we, we talk about the different elements of the program, um, how to progress them. We went through a few different progressions. Um, how does that tie into sort of like somebody's ability to return to either practice for sport or activity. So as a clinician, you're seeing somebody who's able to tolerate, you know, lifting, you know, significant loads relative to their current fitness level at high velocities. And they're also able to tolerate, you know, whatever you're throwing at them, you're pretty much okay with turning them loose uh, at that point. And I, ideally in some graded manner, but like, w is there a specific point along the way where you're like, you're meeting milestones, you're ready to go, or you're not necessarily there yet. We got to let's, let's circle the wagons. It depends on the injury for you. You should always have, you know, participation, practice play. Like it shouldn't be like, Oh, you hit these metrics go with God. It's more of a, like, what are you allowed to do at practice today? And then how dirty can we make it? So with uh, Mark, like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, if we're starting to get back into rolling, like we're going to start non-contact drills. And then almost always I want them to start with higher belts with their sparring because I want people that know what's going on and not some white belt that's going to roll them up and put them in a position they don't need to be in yet. Right. And, and so it's how do I put the constraints on what we're allowed to do in participation? There rarely is a like cut and dry. Like there are certain things like – with the ACL reconstruction, we're not, I don't care if you have checked every box, you're not going back before nine months. And, and that's just tissue healing. Right. And, and so with certain injuries that, that is in play, but with something like a, a hamstring strain, like if you're a sprinter, well, hopefully our clinic is big enough and set up to where I can actually have you sprint in clinic. Because if not, have we really checked the box to see if you're okay doing this? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And, and one of the most interesting parts of your presentation had to do with like the sterile and dynamic environments. And I think that's what you're speaking to with how dirty can you make it? So, you know, you can get somebody to tolerate a drop jump, get somebody to tolerate broad jumps, get somebody to tolerate, you know, running, sprinting, whatever. Um, but if their sport is, you know, American football, for example, <laughs> well, they need to tolerate being, doing all that in a sort of live environment where they're things are not quite as scripted or predictable. And so um, are you starting to incorporate either maybe uh, different agility tasks or different like distractions where they might actually be touched or pushed by you or somebody else? Or how's that work? Absolutely. And this is something we haven't really touched on. Uh, you, you want to have some reactive drills in place and you want to have some cognitive load there as well. And it's real easy. Like, we used to have this beautiful, here's 10 cut deceleration progression. 
is one of the best documents, like as far as just being clean, there is. And you're like, well, that's awesome. You can do a 45 degree cut. If I'm a cornerback, the first thing I'm going to do is try to take you off that. Mm-hmm. So I should probably in clinic have something set up to where I'm going to call when you cut versus having you do it at the orange cone, or I'm going to have, or I'm going to call when you're decelerating or, you know, what do we hear in sports pretty much all the time is, you know, keep your head up. So we may be doing drills and while you're jumping or changing direction, you know, I'm holding up fingers and having you tell me the number or, you know, there's, and, and this kind of gets into the, the dirtiness of it and why it's hard to be overly prescriptive because there are a thousand ways to approach this. And it really is contingent upon the demands of the athlete and what you have access to. It's not like I could write a theoretical program and it would cover 60% of the people. Mm-hmm. Now, if it operated under the like, pick one thing, do it as hard as you can for 15 seconds for a few reps, pick another thing, have someone either make contact with you or distract you while you're trying to do it. And with return to sport, like the easiest example is, is talking about volleyball players, because typically if you see an injury in an outside hitter, it's because they got pushed outside on the set. So if we're just going through drills, you're typically okay just going and hitting and you can work on your timing and do all that. But at some point, like I got to have you start hitting some bad sets. Yeah. 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 There's some, there's some obviously trade off there. It's like, all right, you want, and when somebody's doing this to be clear, they're getting close to returning to sport. Like oh, this yes. is like, it's like final form, like maybe even been doing some like limited practices or whatever. And now you're just trying to kind of, okay, we're at that last that last level here. Um, there's some trade-off obviously with like risk in training and then, you know, risk of sport. You're willing to accept pretty much any risk in sport, like just, you know, by nature of, of voluntarily participating, but in training, uh, which is what we'd be doing here, you're very risk averse in general. It's like, if this has a high payoff with a little bit of risk, I'm willing to accept that. But if, you know, once those things start getting a little more even, you're like, uh, I don't know if this is something we should be doing. Cause obviously, you know, you could have somebody, uh, you know, do really bad, a bad set, for example, or, you know, make a really aggressive cut that it maybe is not something they'd likely to see in a game situation or, or whatever. And you're like, well, oh, cool. You did, you're able to do everything now. It's like, yeah, well you actually just re ruptured your ACL. So maybe. <laughs> well, but if you look at it and, and this is the, or a, big knock against rehab professionals. If you look at all the literature on like landing mechanics, it almost always starts out with, we want a soft landing because there's less force on the joint, Mm -hmm. which is hilarious because like, if you want to make someone unathletic, have them land soft. Sure. Yeah. Like on the performance side, it's like, I want you hitting the ground as hard, like delivering as much force to the ground as possible. Mm -hmm. And if we're constantly trying to protect, well, once again, it may look good or passable or whatever adjective we want to put while we're in clinic, but at some point you got to go out and kick the tires. Yeah. Yeah. And and, uh, also to be clear to our listeners, look, if you are not a competitive athlete in a sport that requires you to do these things, you've already passed your rehab you know, <laughs> yeah. the end of rehab at this point, you're, you're back to lifting weights, doing stuff unencumbered, unrestricted or whatever. This is more specific to return to play, particularly in team sports where the stuff is very dynamic and that's just part of getting prepared to deal with those challenges. But if you're, you know, 
my knee hurts when I squat. You went through this process. We did some high velocity stuff. You don't, you don't need to do agility drills. And, and just because I'm angry, I'm not an angry person. I'm just angry. Like in this particular moment in my life, uh, if you are a healthy athlete, if you are a healthy athlete participating in sport practice, you're training appropriately, this and the other doing some of these dr- drills as part of your dedicated off the field training just absolutely blows my mind. It blows my mind. I'm like, this person is weak, not as conditioned as they should be, not as doesn't have the game craft, if you will, the mind for their particular sport as well-developed as it could be. And you're wasting time doing this stuff that they're doing in practice or in the sport. Like, come on, man. I don't know. I see it on Instagram all the time. Makes me, makes my head blow up. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you in I think any well-designed program, especially if it's there to make you a better athlete, it's how do I increase the capacity for the sport you're participating in? And most of the time that comes down to like aerobic capacity, strength, and then some power development. Now, do I think there's a place for some of these like quote unquote fun drills, but do I think it should be the, the first course? Like if you're at that point in rehab, but you know, if you want a nice self-selected way to work on change of direction, some short distance sprints and just running around jumping, go shoot basketball for 15 minutes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you were checking every box at that point. Yep. Exactly. People are like, Oh no, check this thing out on Instagram. And it's some like, you know, they're doing the ladder drill and then they're doing these, you know, hops over PVC. They've taken up the entire gym floor space to make an Instagram video. And I'm like, bro, you play volleyball, like just go play volleyball or basketball, you know, some other, do some cross training. Also, you're not strong enough yet. Also, like we can improve your power production by actual in the gym training, but instead you spent 30 minutes setting up this obstacle course for the clout. And now, and now, and now I'm ranting. Okay. <laughs> well, but you look at things in like, once again, you want a simple way of doing it. Uh, set up four cones, five meters apart play tag with somebody. Yep. Yeah. And you don't need a bunch of equipment. You're going to have to move in some different ways. Uh, And also like you can't just run away. So (laughs) we forced change of direction as a result of the constraints. Let's put you in an octagon, four cones, we're playing tag. Eight Um, ounce gloves. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. So this is the last question uh, that I have for you on episode 216. I'm with Dr. Derek Miles here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Most sports that would see direct benefit from power training require lots of power display during practice and competition. Do these athletes need to do additional power training during off the field training? So what I mean by that is you have somebody who plays soccer, American football, um, track and field athlete or whatever during the season, do they still need to be working on high velocity force production in the gym, uh, given their constraints of their actual competitive season they're probably only in the gym twice a week you know so it's like do they need to do that while they're there uh if it's a high school athlete i would say yes if it's a professional athlete i would say no okay why is the, was the change because the professional athlete has the capacity yeah more developed yeah. over a longer period of time higher levels sure yeah and and it is you know figuring out where that person is and i i think this kind of gets it like at what level are we competing Mm-hmm. And, you know, even within that, if you're, if you're playing soccer, but you're mostly on the bench, 
then absolutely. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. But if you're a forward and, you know, you're tracking 10 kilometers over the course of a match, then I'm probably more concerned about making sure you're recovered than talking about top end power. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we fall, we're in a similar opinion here. I, I think maybe a little dose, particularly of people that are using it on a regular basis. So your starters, your, you know, people that get a lot of, uh, play time, um, mainly just to like, make sure that you're not decaying, you know, the, the stuff you've trained for so, so, so long and so hard for, uh, but it's just a little, you just need a touch, just a little, little pinch of power training. Most of the stuff I, it's I, the garnish I, on the plate. That's right. Yeah. Whereas people who are not playing, you could dedicate a lot more resources to that. Uh, and I feel similarly for most sports with, with, uh, on, you know, in season and off season training, in season training is more about maintenance to the extent that, you know, you can, and, and you're dedicating your resources in the gym, uh, towards maintaining what you've already built up previously. If they're untrained, that all goes out the, out the window. It's like, yeah, you can still make gains while you're in season, but for trained individuals, uh, with a heavy competitive load, yeah, it's maintenance mode. And then off season, that's time to make gains for sports that don't have in season and out off season. That is a, that is a, almost a trickier question. Cause you don't get this sort of seasonality baked into your competitive, uh, to the year. Right. So like powerlifting is like, what's, what's in season, what's off season. It's like, everything's in season. It's like, well, my first question there is which meets mean the most to you. Well, sure. So you can create a season, right. But then, but then you, you have people that are recreational powerlifters who don't actually compete and they're like, no, I'm doing singles year round. I'm like, why though? Like, you know, that's not the best use of your time. Like there are phases where that's useful for developing the specific skills that you're trying to display. But there are other times where that's a distraction and, you know, may lead to more overuse injuries, stagnation, staleness, whatever. Plus, again, there are still holes in your physical development that need to be plugged before so you can reach your peak performance potential. Um, and I think it's the same thing with BJJ, right? Like if these people, they go to BJJ practice two, three, four, five times a week ad nauseum, they're never going to compete or the competition is years away. But there's no in-season and off-season. There's no, And they're like, well, how do I best strength train while I'm doing BJJ five times a week? I'm like, I don't know that you can, dude. You could go in twice a week for 30, 40 minutes, lift some weights, get out, work on your conditioning because that's probably what's lacking the most at that point. But like, unless you have dedicated periods of prep where it's like an equalizer, the BJJ volume is going to go down, the exercise volume is going to go up. Like, I don't know how you, how you would, you know, get around that until you get injured in which case now you've created an off season and it's like that's typically what happens yes uh but i think some of this is having those honest conversations or having facilitating the athletes having some honest conversations with themselves yeah because if somebody tells me they want to run singles year round cool it's ultimately your decision but why right yeah and okay, well, I'm trying to get stronger. What's happened with your run RM? Well, it's been stagnant for the last four months. Maybe we should look somewhere else. Now, if you are like every week I'm going up, then like do your thing, man. You Good on you. So. Yeah. Yep. We see eye to eye on this unsurprisingly. Uh, well, this has been, this has been useful. Yeah. Again, we haven't talked about power training previously on the barbell medicine podcast. We're going to get you back and explore some more of these progressions. I think the people are going to eat this up and they're going to blow up your inbox as proof of that. And, uh, so hopefully we can get some, some more cooking with adhesions content on exercise progressions. I would love that. So, uh, Derek, it'd be a, a bunch of just high intensity. I'll, I'll get out the relay torch. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, for more of Derek's content, you can obviously check it out on the Barbell Medicine website. You can check him out on Instagram. It's Derek underscore Barbell Medicine. Um, we'll have some info from the sh- uh, from his presentation in the show notes, in addition to um, these links to the sponsors, links to the different articles I mentioned in the intro, and more. But again, thank you for joining us here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This is episode 216. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.